I have, when I've been in parish, which hasn't been a lot in my 25 years in ministry, always felt that uh, the Sunday before the 12th had one topic and one topic only, to look at our own little troubled land. And this year I thought I had a perfect resource. I had picked up The Real Peace Process by Siobhan Garrigan, Worship, Politics, and the End of Sectarianism. And I thought, if I get the chance in the first couple of weeks of July when things are slightly less certain in the evenings, I'll get a chance to read this and that'll give us the flesh for our 12th of July service. But it didn't really, although it did. There's a confusion. It didn't in a lot of the heart of what it says. In fact, I found that uh, Siobhan, um, in her book, she didn't seem to have seen enough churches. She went round in maybe 28 churches in Ireland. Uh, I imagine which half would have been Catholic, half would have been Protestant, which means uh, when she looked at Anglican, Methodist, and Presbyterian, that she wasn't going to too many uh, Presbyterian churches. Because in her definition of Presbyterian, she talked about the Middle Isle being so crucial. And I was aware of people coming to get married in Fisherwick when I was a member there because of the uniqueness of Fisherwick's centre aisle. Then she spoke about how in Protestant churches, exclusively all of them, there was a cross right in the centre of the building. Again, I wasn't sure where she had been in the few churches that she'd been in. She called Presbyterians Faith Hill Presbyterians. No, no, not Market Hill, Faith Hill. I had to, because I have an exquisite taste in music, had to Google Faith Hill. But there's a few who maybe knew she was musicians, so I'm slightly... Johnny Hicks, you would have been the last, I would have thought. Anyway, the reason for that was that we sing like Faith Hill. And that Ireland, and this is where I come into my expertise with Siobhan, you see, that Ireland had very little Irish worship. Now, I didn't tell Neil that I was talking about this or the band when they were choosing the hymns. But we've already had Keith Getty and we're finishing with Be Thou My Vision as arranged by the Wren Collective here from Bangor. That's not to mention Robin Mark, Blue Tree, Brad Houston, and various others. So when it came to it, I'm thinking, you're onto something here, Siobhan, but you don't really have the Presbyterian thing sussed. Now, whether, and I think it was a stretch too, it's a fascinating book, and I really enjoyed reading the book, and I'll, I'll come to the challenge of it maybe in a minute. But she went in quite a lot to why Catholics in Ireland don't give the cup the way they do elsewhere in the world and how Vatican II didn't happen there and goes into that the famine and alcoholism might be the reason for that. I thought maybe the famine would stop us eating the bread rather than the cup, but bear with it. There was lots of things that I just sensed were a, a stretch and it wasn't really what I wanted for today. So I turned then to the events of the last few weeks for me, particularly from June the 21st, which is in Northern Ireland over the last 10 years, 
a day of reflection for victims and survivors of the Troubles. The longest day. Don't get technical and theologically astute with me. On a leap year, it's the 20th. Most years, it's the 21st, and who knew until I put it up on Facebook? Um, But anyway, they do this day of reflection, which in, in historical terms has been very much just an opportunity for victims who've lost loved ones or victims of the troubles who've survived to just reflect, remember, think, ponder a way forward. And they haven't really been doing anything of a, anything to mark that. It's been simply as people have gone about their business. But this year, VAST, that's Victims and Survivors Trust, invited Father Martin McGill to do something in Lena Doon to mark it in St. Oliver Plunkett's. And being a bit subversive, Martin felt, if we're going to do a day of reflection, we need the prods in. So he phoned me up and he said, would you take part in this? And we both wrestled for a long time over what we could do and what we couldn't do and how sensitive we could be and how much we could move people forward and all of that kind of stuff. But that really wasn't what struck me. What struck me in being involved in a day of reflection was to be right in the middle of just saturating yourself for a couple or three hours with people whose lives were so transformed in a second by our troubles. Marissa came up to me and uh, she couldn't believe it because her husband was the third last before the ceasefire. He was uh, a printer in Lurgan and they thought that the printing press that he worked in was involved in producing an IRA newspaper. So they just come in and one day um, Marissa's husband didn't come home because the UFF just came in and shot him dead. And she said that he was a huge Deacon Blue fan, which I understood because I was a huge Deacon Blue fan and how she'd met. And, and so for her, her reflection on that day had been on the way to Lena Dune. She thought she would listen to Deacon Blue. And then I used Deacon Blue as the music for the reflection. And she was incredibly moved. And she shared her story. And I'm thinking the futility of just an ordinary person with no affiliations to anybody, just randomly chosen. Paul Gallagher is the head of VAST and he asked Martin to do the service. Paul was in his home one day. He says in a book called The Injured, he says most people were involved in the troubles or became victims of the troubles by being in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was in the right place at the right time. He was in his own home. When the door smashed open and the UFF came in and shot all round and Paul was the one when the carnage blended or drifted away who was lying going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of his life they mistook him for the neighbor they couldn't get into the neighbors so any catholic would do at that point again no affiliation but they shared with me this week in his front room in lena Dune how his brother then gave up work and his his sister-in-law went out to work so that his brother-in-law or his brother could look after him the whole house has changed His whole life has changed as he moves around in a wheelchair. Victims and survivors of our troubles. And just a few weeks ago, I I preached a sermon on how we need to be the word made flesh in our community. And how incarnation is important and how it's going to be difficult for us. And I couldn't help this week as I was sitting in Paul's house, having a cup of coffee with him, asking myself, what does incarnation mean? 
in post-Troubles Northern Ireland. What does it mean for the word to become flesh in Paul's life or in Marissa's life or in the lives that you know that were changed by these troubles that we had? What would it mean to move into that kind of neighborhood? Because that's the neighborhood we live in and so often deny or just don't get to touch it the way I had to on June the 21st. Incarnational mission, we can look at how we do it in a postmodern culture. We can look at how we do it in a globalized capitalist culture. Or we can look at how we do it in a Facebook, Twitter, social media world. But really, the one that's very obvious to us is right in our faces. We're from Northern Ireland. Have you ever said that somewhere else in the world? What's the first thing they think? Oh, how are you being incarnational with Twitter and Facebook days? Or because you're from Belfast, what's the first thing? What is the first thing that describes our community? So in this 12th week, Siobhan Garrigan, I think, maybe quoting Brian Lennon, says, what is the priority for the Christian community in Northern Ireland? Is it reconciliation with justice or is it the maintenance of separate communities? So how does the word become flesh in a post-troubles Northern Ireland? Well, our reading today gives us some amazing insights into how that might happen. Philippians chapter 2 set with the church in Philippi, as it seemed all the churches had, uh, sort of little skirmishes, little breakdowns in relationship. And so right at the outset, in the midst of conflict, if you look at verses 1 to 5 of what we read today, you'll find there was something going on. There's uh, clues to that elsewhere in the letter. And Paul was saying, no, let's try and, in in the midst of conflict, let's look at who Jesus is. As we try to see how we can reconcile, let's see what Jesus' attitude would be. And so we have that wonderful incarnational part of Jesus becoming human. The humility of becoming cursed on a cross. And our own incarnation is there too, isn't it? In verses 14 15 and 16 of what Philip read. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. We're meant to be followers of Jesus so that we make an impression in the world that we live in. Incarnation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. So here we've got In the context of conflict, an example of Jesus, and a command for us to be light in the dark. You know, the Pax Christi, which hangs in the wall outside, if you're a visitor, we are the only Protestant church, I think, still, who have been given the Vatican Peace Prize. And it's a lovely glass bowl. If you go out through that door, you will see it in a lovely case. 
And it's wonderful to be part of a congregation that when you read any book, any book, it always comes back to Fitzroy Clonard. Most books on the Troubles that mention church will come back to Fitzroy Clonard Fellowship. But today, in 2012, not in the 80s when Ken went up and shook hands with Jerry and those relationships were filling this church with all kinds of controversial things that I stood out in the street and took photographs of uh, Ian Paisley Piggott and, and all that kind of stuff. Today, 2012, what is our urgency? What are we doing? And again, we need to ask ourselves, had Jesus anything to say? And the amazing thing about the Gospels is, Jesus was incarnated into a sectarian community, a violent community. And Jesus broke down the sectarianism and the violence. If you look at societal prejudices, you can think of Zacchaeus. Nobody wanted to know. Jesus, right through the crowds. Get the guy up the tree. Take him for dinner. The guy nobody else wanted to be with. The last person in the town that anybody thought would be meeting with Jesus, he's the one I'm looking for. I want to break down that prejudice that tax collectors or drug dealers or can I say now bankers. Jesus right through the crowd to the one up the tree. But then you look at John chapter 4 and you have the Samaritan woman. And you have Jesus going through Samaria. And he sits down at a well. And here's this Samaritan, the sectarian divide. He's broken the sectarian divide. He's broken it by going through Samaria in the first place because most of the Jews went round Samaria because they didn't want to go through. Maybe West Belfast. I went up the first time to see Father Martin, uh, Miguel, and Indalena Dune, and there is a a quarter at least or a third of our city that I'd never seen. Fusco's is on the Andersonstown Road. The best ice cream. If you want it, it's, it's there, but you maybe didn't. I didn't even know there still was a Fusco's. There's schools up there, brand new schools. There's forests. It's incredible. But we don't go through that way because there's different colours of the pavements. That was a bit like Samaria. It wasn't somewhere where the Jews knew. But Jesus went in and sat down and befriended a Samaritan woman. That was breaking the sectarian divide. Jesus lived in an incredibly violent country where there would be people hanging on crosses. It wasn't just three in the life of Jesus who hung on a cross. There would have been people hanging on crosses in quite regular intervals because the Romans wanted to show that by violence they could rule. What does Jesus do about that? Well, we know that story that I tell you about so often where he goes to the Roman centurion. The Roman centurion, who's probably heading up some of these crucifixions, asks Jesus to heal his servant. And when Jesus gets near his house, the Roman centurion says, you don't even have to, you can just say and he'll be healed. And Jesus says to the Roman, Roman, even a Samaritan would be better than a Roman, I imagine, I haven't seen faith like this in the whole country. Jesus, breaking into those who were violent, Against his side. In fact, his death is a sectarian, violent death. Probably as a result of doing things like he did with the Roman centurion. Jesus 
lived incarnationally in a divided, sectarian, violent society. And he said, follow me. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And many areas of the world might even have to travel to a sectarian divided society to be Christ-like. We were given the privilege or the curse of having it right here. To follow Jesus in an authentic way is to be in such a society. And we see in the reading that Philip read at the end of Philippians, you might have thought those last verses, they don't seem to have much to do with that first part. But actually what they show in Philippians is relationship for Paul was really, really important. You'll find in all his letters, relationship, naming people, people's names. It's a very important part of what it is to be in this ministry of Christ's. Relationship is really important. And in the story of the Samaritan woman, he gets into relationship. Maybe not so closely with the Roman centurion as he never seems to get to his house. But there's still relationship. There's still affirmatives given from Jesus to this Roman centurion. Jesus is very much in relationship. And this is where I feel that Siobhan Garrigan at the end gets to, I think, the crux of the Northern Ireland way to be God flesh in post-Northern Ireland troubles. She says, contextualizing the discoveries of the book from the outset in friendship rather than in visiting or in being guests or in extended hospitality to the stranger makes for a far more dynamic experience because it implies an expectation of ongoing relationship. She's driving for the churches to be about friendship rather than we'll go to Clonard some Sunday night. Or we'll have the Unity Pilgrims come to us some Sunday. Or, yes, we'll, we'll invite the stranger in to do something. She's saying, no, we need it to be a truer sense of friendship. A longer living relationship. And what's her example? Clonard Fitzroy. As that which modelled friendship that was longer lasting. Friendship. We, um, when Father Gary Toman came to Queen's as chaplain, the four chaplains went off for a retreat. We'd never done that before. And we actually had David Livingstone came and talked to us about university life in Western Europe. I'm sure he doesn't remember too much of what he said at that stage. But we also had Bruce Yoakum, um, from a Catholic perspective, come and speak to us. And he came out with three words that became the overriding... Um, statement for all that we did as chaplains at Queen's and now has become the words that Father Jerry and myself and Father Martin McGill use all the time. He said, guys, don't, do not contrive anything. Do not come up with some, tell you what we'll do. We will go over to Clonard and we will say hello to three people and we will rush back across to our side again. He said, do not contrive anything, but be in relationship to the point where when something comes up, you have the opportunity to go through the door. We did that in chaplaincy. We became friends and we had coffee regularly. 
And then the university came to us and said, we're doing this St. Patrick's Day thing to stop the Holy Land riots. Very successful it was too. Um, And they came to us and they thought, oh, the four chaplains will do some ecumenical service and it'll be on the news and it'll show that queens are doing something about the Holy Lands. And we went, nah, we weren't really into ecumenical anything. We were into being friends and working together with our differences. So we came up with this event where we would talk about what St. Patrick meant to us and have music from each of the chaplaincies. And that wasn't really, because that's a bit contrived in some levels, that wasn't really what made the impact. The impact was made when we weren't expecting it. To get people to this event, we walked into the quad and we handed out invitations. There's nothing really too remarkable about that. But in the quad at Queen's, with all the windows from all the offices, suddenly people were starting to talk about the four chaplains. Isn't that amazing to see the four of them standing in the quad, laughing with each other and giving out leaflets? Students were coming up and saying to us, thank you because I have this friend who's over from China and she just can't understand why she would even think about Christianity because it's so divided here and there the four of you are there together handing, thank you so much. Or it got round the staff and people said to me, oh, they're talking about you in our office, the four of you out there. We didn't contrive it. We didn't plan it. We stumbled into it. But we stumbled into it because of friendship and relationship. Ken talks in the book that Ron Wells wrote about him and Jerry, friendship towards peace, about that moment when that Catholic priest in Indonesia knocked his door. And when they get past their Catholic Protestant theological arguments and they became friends, that changed Ken's life. When there's a day of reflection in Lena Dune, Martin thinks, my mate Steve should be involved in that. Or when Martin comes to our articulate in January, or was it February, Chris, and we had the Sam drummers talking about unity, and he read that passage in Corinthians about the body. Because Chris just said, somebody come and read this. And Martin got up because he's part of it. And read it. It wasn't contrived. But if you were in the room, it was a prophetic moment. Or the best story of all. After church one night, when Evolve's happening in the room behind us here, that's our youth group for visitors, at the end of it, it happened to be the week that Jerry and Ken were talking about their story. The doorbell rings. And Chris goes out answers the door and he finds two Catholic schoolboys from Armagh who'd come up to the city it seems to sort of check out Queens and the Holy Land for next year but were a wee bit taken aback by what they were experiencing and the drunkenness etc etc around them so they'd drifted off from their friends and had decided to walk their way back and they were chatting with each other it seems about how culture shocking this was for them And they looked for a church. Well, you're not finding a Catholic one unless you go right down into the markets in St. Malachy's. So they found ours and they rang the doorbell. Chris comes to the door, sees who they are. With Chris's usual 
pastoral sensitivity and genius. He picks up who they are. He says, wait a moment. Goes down and he says, Jerry, there's a couple of Catholic boys at the door. You wouldn't go and speak to them. So Father Jerry says, yes. Assures Chris that he's dealt with that kind of thing before and doesn't need a muscle man like Chris would be beside him. And Jerry speaks to them, prays with them, and they go on their way. Now, can you imagine they're home the next week? Ma, I was in Belfast, and I rang the doorbell of a Presbyterian church. And a priest fell out of the cupboard and came and prayed with me. Son, we told you not to be drinking. (laughs) But what an impact. Not on those two. But in the mother and father and the story that would go around the community. You rang the bell of a Presbyterian church. And a priest came and prayed with you. How does that happen? Friendship. Incarnation. The word made flesh. Breaking down the sectarianism. So what about us as a community? The challenge for me this week is, what have we ever done for the survivors? And those in wheelchairs? Or those who lost legs? Or arms? What has the church's pastoral care been to that community? It's much easier to look at those who were lost and there's a book Lost Lives and Paul just gave me a book Injured and I'm starting to read that and it's a harrowing tale of people still alive living with the implications but beyond that for us as individuals for us as a Fitzroy community how are we today not yesterday the word Becoming flesh in this community. Let's pray together. Lord, in the silence, we pray that you would search us and ask us where we are as individuals incarnating the gospel across traditional dividing lines. What friendships, Lord, do we need to nurture as individuals and as a congregation? Lord, by your Spirit, Show us opportunities that we might have to not be involved in contrived schemes, but to be involved in friendship. Friendships that make reconciliation the norm and open doors to bring your word, your grace, your love into those areas of our society that desperately need Jesus. Lead us as individuals, Lord. And lead us as a community. Give us a vision.
Show us the example of Jesus. Give us the courage to follow. In Jesus' name, amen.